Brothers and sisters, some time ago I have preached from this pulpit on the, the words of Paul in Romans 6, the verses 1 to 14. The principles of Romans 6, 1 to 14 come back again in the remainder of the chapter, and it's good for us to be reminded of those very principles. And so we'd like to read this morning from Romans 6, 1 to 14, and then our text is Romans 6, verses 15 to 23. Romans 6, verse 1, hear the Word of God. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, our old nature, was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin." For he who has died has been freed from sin. <coughs> now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And here begins our text. What then shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness." For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit then did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the Word of God. 
After the proclamation of God's word, we'll praise God with the words of hymn 79, stanzas 3, 4, and 5. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the 2016 Nobel Prize winner Bob Dylan, in an earlier, more Christian period, wrote an interesting song called, You Gotta Serve Somebody. I'm not too sure who Bob Dylan is serving today, but part of the song goes like this. It says, you may be a preacher preaching spiritual pride. You might be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair, but you got to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, brothers and sisters, that is essentially the message of this passage before us this morning. Paul has been speaking in chapter 5 about how death came through Adam and life came through the second Adam. It's a wonderful message. Grace and righteousness come through the grace of God on account of the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first 14 verses of chapter 6 he tells us how we, 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 we need to embrace all of this and ensure that it's indeed our own. It begins in verse 5 with saying, do you not know you were crucified, you died, you raised with Christ, you were united with Christ. And then he says in, in verse 11 and following, he says, not only do we have to know that as an intellectual fact, we have to consider it so. We have to reckon it so. We are dead to sin and alive to God. And, and it, 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 it's actually accounting terminology. We have to reckon it so. You, it's like you, you reckon something to be true on your books, even though they might not be entirely true. You reckon it so, and you live it out like that. And that's the problem with the Christian life. We have to reckon it true that we die to sin. Because if you think that you're not that you are not united with Jesus Christ, then you have an excuse for sinning, and you think you can go on with all your sins and all your transgressions. I'm a sinner. No, you have died to Christ, to sin in Christ. Now reckon it so. And the result of that, Paul says in verses 12 to 14, what you need to do then is you now need to offer, you need to present all your body parts to God. Paul talks about all our body parts, our, our, our members of our, the members of our body. He has in mind, no doubt, the, the private parts as well as the more public parts. You name them, offer them all to service to God. That's the Christian life. And what's he doing then in verses 15 to 23? He's impressing all of this upon us. He's helping us to reckon it all to be so and urging us again to offer our lives as lives of thanksgiving to God. So God's Word comes to you under this theme this morning. Better a slave to God than a slave to sin. We'll ask two questions. Who's master in your life, sin or God? We'll look at two results, either death or life. Two masters, sin or God, two results, death or life. 
Brothers and sisters, if you study this tremendous chapter carefully, it will not take you too long to realize the whole chapter is really dealing with two questions which are very similar. The first question is there in verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? We're sinful people. Paul has outlined in chapter 3, 4, 5 the tremendous nature of God's grace. So shall we just continue in God's sin, in our sin so that God can continue to show His grace? And the same question comes up essentially in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? It's a similar thought Paul is fighting. If our acts of sin lead God to display His grace, why should we not just go on sinning so that God can display more grace? As some have suggested, then the whole world is quite admirably arranged. We sin and God forgives and we have a great relationship. But while the force of the questions is the same, there is a slight difference. In verse 1, he's asking the question, should we continually sin? Is it right, appropriate as a Christian to live in a lifestyle of sin? He actually uses a verb there that actually says, shall we continue, remain, abide in sin? Should that be our customary practice? That's question number two, number one. Question number two is slightly different though. Does living under grace give me liberty to sin? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? The first question involves a lifestyle choice. The second one seems to have in mind more the moment-by-moment decisions that we all make. You could say it's asking questions like, is it all right at me at any given moment to treat someone unkindly because I, I, I know I can instantly be forgiven? Is it okay for me to skip devotions because I know I can quickly come back into fellowship with God? Is it okay for me to have a look at this website when I know I really shouldn't? I can be forgiven tomorrow, we think. Is it okay to borrow something without permission because you know you can be forgiven by God? How often do we not say in our hearts, I know this is sin, but God will forgive me and I'll do it anyway. I know this is wrong, but it's not a big deal. Are we actually reckoning ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God when we do that? So the one question has to do with lifestyle, the other has to do with individual moment-by-moment decisions. Can I excuse my behavior today because God saves me by His grace? (coughs) And notice the same answer is given to both questions, and it's a very emphatic answer. Paul cannot possibly be more emphatic. By no means, certainly not. That's absurd. And then what does Paul do as he counters this? What does he do in verses 16 to 20? Verse 16 Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? What Paul is actually saying is you've got to realize that with respect to the question of freedom and slavery, there is no such thing as absolute freedom. Man wants to be free. You want to be free. 
what most people seem to long for, the absolute freedom to do whatever they please without negative consequences is a foolish illusion, if ever there was an illusion in this world. Such a freedom is impossible. It's impossible in the physical world. You are not free to jump off a skyscraper without splattering yourself all over the sidewalk. It's impossible in the world of relationships. The free love so highly touted in, in the late 60s proved not to be free at all. It had all kinds of consequences, diseases, and you name it. Well, Paul's point is absolute freedom in the spiritual world is impossible as well. You are the slave of that power which you obey. If you obey sin, sin is your master. If you obey God, God is your master. Life is always a choice between two masters. you got to serve somebody, and the best thing you can do is find the best possible master. Think about it. When we choose to sin, it often feels like a free choice, usually because it goes against tradition or rules or regulations. I'm not going to listen to all those rules and uh, of mom and dad or the church or the Bible, we say. But the truth is, it isn't freedom at all. We're just under new management, new slavery. It's slavery to all kinds of sinful desires and motives in me. It doesn't lead to freedom either. I just become addicted to whatever it is I perceive to be my greatest pleasure in life. Eve thought she was making a free, independent choice based on her best understanding of the situation, but she was deceived. She simply chose to serve Satan instead of serving God and became enslaved by the never-ending consequences of deciding to serve Satan. The prodigal son of Luke 15 thought he was making a free choice. Every teenager can relate to this. Ah, this is a good idea. Get away from mom and dad. But he learned as he was doing what no Jewish boy would have ever imagined doing, feeding the pigs. He learned, you got to serve somebody. You're always serving somebody. Sin is never a free choice made in a vacuum. Sin is an addicting reality that deceives and then captures us. If we choose to sin, we choose to become obedient servants of sin. It's a ruthless taskmaster that will drive us mercilessly to death. The real truth is this idea that freedom from the law makes us free and independent is an illusion a mirage. The man or woman who imagines he or she is free because he acknowledges no God but his own ego is deluded. The service of one's own ego is the very essence of the slavery to sin. Is the desire for such freedom to do one's own thing without consequence that is the essence of sin. Think about it. Satan's desire was to be independent of God and to rule on his own. Adam was dissatisfied with having every good thing as long as it had to be sullied by that one symbol of dependence on God. And that's what we do as well. In those moment-by-moment -moment decisions, every time we choose to do what we know is actually wrong, we are saying our delight is not in following God's way but our own way, foolishness. You know, we should do some time, we should get a copy of the classic work of 
Augustine, the Confessions of Augustine. Therein, that famous 4th century figure is very frank and honest about the war within him, the struggles of his soul. At one point, he speaks about the burning desire within him to find satisfaction in hellish pleasures. I ran wild in the shadowy jungle of erotic adventures, pleasing myself, being ambitious to win human approval. Clouds of muddy, carnal concupiscence filled the air. But was it freedom? Augustine says to God, Your wrath was heavy upon me, and I was unaware of it. I had become deafened by the clanking chain of my mortal condition, the penalty of my pride. I traveled very far from you, and you did not stop me. I was tossed about and spilt, scattered and boiled dry in my fornications, and you were silent. How slow I was to find my joy. You said nothing, and I traveled much farther away from you into more and more sterile things, productive of unhappiness, proud of my self-pity. And that's the way it is for us. Augustine says it for us. Freedom is an illusion, and it really offers nothing at all. And that's why Paul rejoices in verse 17 about how the grace of God has led the Roman Christians to break with that. As the ESV puts it, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. He says, thanks be to God that by His grace you have been delivered from that slavery and you have become obedient to a better standard, the standard of teaching in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and urges them to offer to present all the parts of their bodies to righteousness, life, and the service of God. Verse 19 following. But yes, he uses the language of slavery. And he describes the Christian life. Paul does this all the time. He describes the Christian life as a life in which we are slaves to righteousness and slaves to God. Slaves. But what does that matter? Modern man doesn't want to hear this language. But you see, whether or not slavery is a good thing or a bad thing always depends on the nature of your master. If you had a cruel and, and, and miserable master in those days, slavery was a terrible thing. But if you had a good and kind and gracious master, slavery could be just fine. I once traveled with my family to, down to Gettysburg, which is the heart of a, a memoir of the Civil War. And the Civil War was all about slavery, right? And I wanted to get in, in, in the mood of what happened there and what this, these wars were all about. So I read this book about this, this man who was a slave in the Civil War. And he went through freedom and he came out of the Civil War and he actually wanted to go back to his master because life was good with that master. He was a kind master. He was a good master. He looked after his slaves, his servants. He looked after them all. But now he had, a, he had to have a, find a house. He had to find a job. He had to find a decent, master, a decent employer. He had to have a mortgage. He had to have all these other things that complicated his life. And he just wanted to go back to his old master. And that's what he did. 
Well, realize that's how it always goes with slavery. And realize God is a good and kind and gracious master. There is no better master in the whole world. Jesus Christ is a good master. Do you ever realize that Lord's Day 1 is actually, in, in, in the catechism, is, is slavery language? Jesus Christ bought us. He made us his own. What is that? That's slavery language. He bought us because that's what you do when you wanted a slave in the Roman world. You went to the market and you bought a slave. Well, Jesus Christ has bought each one of us. But who cares? Because he is the best master ever in the whole world. A master who even sets us free. Paul's convinced of that. Think of the very first verse of the letter to the Romans. How does Paul introduce himself? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Actually, that's not really accurate. He literally says, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. And what is Paul telling us here again and again all over his writings? This, do you want freedom? The paradoxical thing is you never become more free than when you know yourself to be a slave of Jesus Christ, a slave of the best master in all the world. Paul is urging us to become more and more obedient to this master. He's urging us to explore all the avenues and all the joys of this slavery. Somehow through a failure of, uh, to really understand the Scriptures and as well as Reformed theology, we often hear the idea expressed that we don't have freedom. Words like predestination, election, the loss of a free will, these things get twisted in our minds so that we draw the wrong conclusions. But wrong they are. You have to realize you have choices. You have lots of choices. Every day you have the choice to get up, or not to get up. You have the choice to get to work or not to go to work. You have the choice right now to listen to me or you have the choice to not listen to me. You have the choice when we leave here whether you turn right or whether you turn left. Well, so too spiritually. Everything Paul is saying here and urging us to do is built on the presumption that we can also choose not to do this in these moments when you're tempted to sin. You can choose not to do that, but to affirm who you are in Christ instead. We can reckon ourselves dead to sin, or we cannot. We can offer ourselves to God or not. If this is not true, then you can't make any sense out of Paul's writings. You see, Reformed theology has always said, you will never serve God simply through the exercise of your free will. Only the grace of God can make you do that. Only the grace of God can make you serve God. But Reformed theology also says, the absence of a free will in that sense does not mean the absence of a will. To the contrary, this same grace of God that comes into our lives and turns us so that we want to serve Him instead works on our wills. If you doubt that, you need to read and study the Canons of Dort, chapter 3, 4, article 11 and 12, page 578. It says this about the work of the Spirit of God. He opens the closed and softens the hard heart. 
He circumcises that which was uncircumcised. He instills new quality into the will. He makes the will which was dead alive, which was bad good, which was unwilling willing, and which was stubborn obedient. He moves and strengthens it so that like a good good tree, it may be able to produce good fruits. And then Article 12 says at the end, the will so renewed is not only acted upon and moved by God, but acted upon by God, the will itself also acts. Therefore, man himself is rightly said to believe and repent through the grace he has received. Well, so too, Paul, then. There is no one who has more to say about the efficacy of the grace of God. God says, we, Paul says, we will either be saved through the grace of God or not at all. Either God will do it or it won't get done. But what is Paul saying now? He's saying in verse 17 to those who have been saved by the grace of God, listen, there was a day when you didn't know God, when you were in slavery to sin, And then what you did, you daily offered the various parts of your body to wickedness. Well then, says says Paul, now you need to do the opposite. You need to present, you need to willfully present those various parts of your body to God. Just as the Roman slave once consciously chose daily to be obedient to his master, so the Christian can daily choose to obey righteousness. Just as you can choose to go to the right or to the left, to listen or not, to work or not, so you can choose every day to love your spouse or not love your spouse. To say no to whatever sin you're struggling with or to not say no. We are not puppets on a robot, on a string. We are not robots. The Word of God, the preaching of God's Word, the reading of God's Word addresses our wills and the Spirit of God softens those wills, bends them and changes them so that more and more we become better and better slaves of the great, of our great God and Savior. Just as it was the intent of every faithful slave in the ancient Roman world to obey his master better and better, so it is the intent of the people of God who confess, Lord's Day 1, who say, this is my comfort in life and in death, that will I, in all things, in body and soul, belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, then, if that's your confession, then serve him and choose him every day again in all things. I ask your attention for two verses here. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Very striking phrase. This is the life of unbelief. Free from the control of righteousness. Free in regard to righteousness. But contrast that with verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Set free from sin. That's the Christian life. It reminds us of verse 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin shall not be your master. In other words, you don't have to sin. You're not elected to sin. You're not bound to sin. 
<laughs> you might have to pray about it. You might have to wrestle it out with God. But this is the grace of God setting us free from our crushing, harmful slaveries, breaking our addictions, and allowing us to freely and wonderfully offer our lives and our everything to the God of all grace and all glory. Every day you have two ways you can go. You can go toward sin or you can go toward God. It just depends on who really is your master. It's really true, you see, you are never more free than when you are dedicated to the service of God. The highest and best freedom is the freedom of those who are slaves of God and of His Son. You've got to serve somebody, but how blessed are you if that somebody is Jesus Christ. And why is this the highest and best possible freedom? Also because of something else, Paul says. You see, I have to admit that when he says in verse 23, I often misunderstood verse 23, he says here, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I often misunderstood him to be saying something like, the sin of the first Adam leads to death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. And surely Paul is saying that, Romans 5, Romans 6, here and elsewhere. But the point is, when we read this in its context, which we must always do and always try to do, we realize he's saying more than that. He uses the word wages. You know what wages are? Money, pay. You all know what that is. What Paul's doing in many of these last verses is asking, if you serve sin, how much does sin pay? And he's comparing that and saying, if you serve God, how much does God pay? What pays better, to be a slave to sin or a slave to God? Well, then make a chart. What do you get if you are a slave to sin? Verse 19, you get sin. Ever-increasing wickedness. It's the nature of sin. It never satisfies. It goes from bad to worse. It leads to addictions. It leads to trouble. It leads to family breakdown. It leads to all kinds of problems. It enslaves, puts you in bondage. That's what pornography does. That's what alcohol does. That's what drugs do. The same way with a critical spirit, bitterness, a hateful word, gossip. It never satisfies. It just looks for more. Verse 21, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? And Paul, in passing, Paul touches on something else sin pays namely shame, the things you are now ashamed of. With sin comes shame. When you think about what you've done later, you're embarrassed. When others know you suffer shame, a sense that it's so unbecoming and so foolish. And not only that, verse 21, what fruit? The end of those things is death. What does sin pay? Sin pays death. The wages of sin is death. The pay is crummy if your master is sin. Paul uses an interesting word for wages. He uses a word which came from the Roman military. He referred to the daily ration 
that a soldier would receive. Daily he would receive according to what he did daily. So this is saying the daily payment of sin is daily death. The daily wages we get for our moment-by-moment choices is death, trouble. You die a little bit each time you choose to sin. Bondage to sin yields no return except shame and ongoing moral deterioration. But in contrast with that, what does God pay? Verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end to eat everlasting life. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the ESV says, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and is end eternal life. There you have it. Sin leads to sin, shame, ultimately death. It's a rough road, but obedience to God leads down a better road, holiness and eternal life. This is freedom This is better. Here there's no bad aftertaste. Here there's no guilty conscience. Here there's no sense of shame. There's nothing remorseful about it. Sin satisfies for a little while, but holiness satisfies forever. So this then is the question. You've got to serve somebody. In the week before us, you've got to serve somebody. Who will it be? God, sin, Satan, self, no matter who you are or what you do, you've got to serve someone. Well, make no mistake about it, it's foolish to serve anyone other than God, for no one pays better than God. Slaves to God reap the benefit of holiness, and actually in the end, it's not even payment, it's free. The gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We never live the life we have been given more in accordance with its created nature, more in accordance with its very purpose, more to our own happiness, more to God's glory (coughs) than when we live it God's way. And of course, there's only one way that eternal life can be a gift for us, and that is because it is in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus paid for us the wages of sin right to their bitter core and their deepest depths. But remember, you need to affirm that. Not just once in your life when you profess your faith. You affirm it in everything you do. In those moment-by-moment decisions. It's what a slave had to do. Be faithful to his master every moment, in every command, in every area of life. And that's the nature of our slavery as well. And we want to do that because Jesus Christ is our master and he is a wonderful master. So remember, these are the questions. Your members, the instruments of righteousness, Paul says, present them to God. What are the members? What are the instruments of righteousness? What are the instruments you're supposed to present to God? Your ears. Are you going to use them for God, to hear things that are offensive to God, or not? Your eyes, are you going to use them to to sin or to serve God? Your lips, are they going to speak for God, 
or are they going to speak for the devil and all his work? Your hands, are you going to use them as instruments for God or for sin? Your feet, will they lead you in paths of righteousness or will they lead you into sin and the private parts of your body? For God or are you going to use them for other purposes? If there's a secret of the Christian life, it is this. The moment-by-moment decisions we all make. They lead to holiness, and the result is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, you've got to serve somebody. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may be a preacher preaching spiritual pride. You might be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You might like to wear cotton. You might like to wear silk. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. But how utterly foolish it is if that somebody is not the Lord. Look at his sacrifice. Look at his love. Look at where he's taking us. Surely, the somebody must be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.